The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast with Bloomberg. I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter. And I'm Isabel Lee, also a cross-asset reporter. And this week on the show, almost a year into the Fed's hiking campaign, inflation remains high and officials are talking about rates needing to go up even more than previously anticipated. And yet, stocks are holding in, with the S&P 500 rallying almost every week so far this year. So what gives? We'll get into it with a financial advisor who says there's no straight line to even a 4% inflation goal. But first, I want to welcome Isabel Lee to the podcast. I know it's the honor of my life. Oh my gosh, please. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners should know that you and I are co-workers. We're on the same team at Bloomberg. We're We're friends. We're seatmates. Are we friends? Are we seatmates? (laughs) We're across... I guess so. We sit across from each other, but yeah, we turn around a lot and and chit chat. They definitely plan that so that we don't talk too much. Yeah, exactly. We're not next to each other. But I have have an ask of you for the audience. What is it? I want to ask you to tell us one big secret about you. No no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) One big secret. I... This is a lame one, but not everyone knows I'm vegetarian. And I'm also going to reveal you're also a vegetarian. Everybody knows these okay, things. Fine, fine, this fine. is not a big secret. I don't talk about my diet, but I'm a vegetarian. I hate cilantro there. These are not good secrets. I know. I wanted a juicy secret. I wish I had, but I'm a boring person. Oh, my gosh. Let's ring in our guest, maybe. She's more exciting. <laughs> yes, yeah, she is very exciting. <laughs> okay, so the person... Uh, Vildan was saying it's someone that we really like and admire. We just had dinner with her, I think, a couple of months back, and we really hope to do it often because not only is she super smart, but she's super fun. So her name is Nicole Webb. She's Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group. Hi, Nicole. Hi there. It's actually the honor of my lifetime to be here. Oh my with gosh, you guys. <laughs> See? <laughs> I'm going to retire after this. Okay. Oh, after this podcast, <laughs> yes. that's great. Okay, um, before we begin, maybe you can just tell us a bit more about yourself, because not everyone had dinner with you, and also just a bit more about the work that you do. And we had pizza, by the way. And we did, and it was vegetarian pizza. Yes. There was no <laughs> toppings. It was. <laughs> Let's see, I'm Nicole Webb, uh, Senior Vice President, Financial Advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group. We are one of the largest independent registered investment advisory firms in the country. Um, I've been with the firm for almost 20 years, so that dates me a bit. Um, Perhaps the secret about me is my actual age. (laughs) And the work that I do, I work directly for high net worth families, unifying their investment strategies in the context of their greater financial picture. So I spend day-to-day working in collaboration with attorneys, CPAs, and then portfolio managers. Um, The team I represent most often when I'm at dinner with the two of you or working with Bloomberg um, is I run communications for the investment strategies that we prescribe to our clients. 
you sent some really great and fascinating notes our way before we got started. But so let's talk about what happened this week because we got CPI data. We also had a really strong retail sales report. And so I wanted to ask you what you're seeing and what you're making of the market's reaction to some of these maybe hotter than expected or stronger than expected economic data points. Yeah, I think the the marriage between strong retail, strong CPI, strong labor, it confirms a hawkish trajectory for the Fed. I think there is a lot of misinterpretation of Powell's comments and the words that get blast across headline news versus some of the underlying content um, if we dig deeper. The Fed has not wavered from their very clear communication around a 2% target. Also, if you listen to the words of Cash Kari, the Minneapolis Fed, he's very clear in we picked a target and we're working to the target, not interpretation of data as it comes and, you know, a, a softness in, in what the end goal is. And so our takeaway from that is, you know, we, we trust that the Fed, unless they tell us otherwise, is, is sticking to that mandate. And with that, we came into 2023 with the expectation that to create the demand destruction necessary for real price stability, um, we were headed north of five. Uh, our best bet was five and a quarter. And I think as we continue to see some of this strong data, um, we're all starting to adjust if we go even higher, higher than that. What do you make of that 2% target? How justified is that or even realistic? Because earlier in the intro, Vildana even said that you think about 4%. That's quite far from the 2% Fed target. Yeah. And actually, last week, hearing Kashkari um, interviewed and say, we are totally committed to hitting a 2% target. That was a little moment of awe for me. There was this expectation that, at least at our firm, that things were going to normalize to some degree organically um, and that there were going to be elements of inflation that were transitory in nature. It was just going to be a longer roadway for the the settling. What we're seeing, though, with the, the resilience of the consumer the labor market, which, you know, structurally, I have so much curiosity about where we go from here because there's things we can't fix with interest rates alone. All of that to say, if the 2% target is real, that feels like a bit of a brick wall that we're running towards. Okay, so we used to have a debate over hard landing, soft landing. Now I'm hearing there's no landing. In your notes, you said there are many potential outcomes for what comes next. And the market may not be pricing in all of those outcomes. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So when we think about a no-landing scenario where growth remains strong in light of persistent inflation, this one, this one to me is there just needs to be a bit more words. There's no landing right now, meaning we, just, we're, we haven't gotten to that point where the captain comes over the microphone and says, you know, we're 20 minutes from landing, we've started our descent we're just not there. And 2022 was all about the imminent nature of a global recession. And as we kick off, or I guess we're halfway through already, quarter one of 2023, the no landing scenario, my interpretation of it is, is we're just not in descent yet. There has certainly been some damage that has occurred thus far, even outside of housing, manufacturing, confidence across the board, And so, you know, I would say 
were just delayed in our landing. Um, and the rollover or the effects of of tight money is going to trickle through into the system. And this expectation of earnings growth at 3% seems wildly optimistic to me. So going back to inflation, which came in slightly hotter than expected, what do you make of that? Because it came in against a backdrop of earnings, which also haven't been great. How should investors position themselves, I guess? Yeah, you know, there's no doubt that inflation is cooling from the 40-year highs, but it's certainly not cooling as anticipated. And most importantly, progress appears to be s- slowing. And, you know, the kind of the key takeaways that that we looked at most closely were we're constantly trying to digest is this noise or a signal. And what we, if you go below the surface, there was really broad goods data to support strength in inflation resilience in areas that we hadn't necessarily expected. So think apparel, medical goods. When it comes to portfolio positioning, it's hard not, it's hard not to, and I laugh a little bit because I can't, I can't really believe, you know, the reverse course we've taken in terms of talking about fixed income in such a short period of time. But secondarily to that, you know, we are still looking at being overweight towards value sectors. And that certainly hasn't made us winners in terms of portfolio performance year to date, but we're, we're a whopping one and a half months in. Um, and this duration trade that we're seeing play out, we expect to be short-lived. You read my mind with that because the next question I wanted to ask you is in the notes you sent over, you very smartly said, I accept that I have underperformed in the year thus far. Duration trades are leading the way. So I wanted to to ask you to to talk more about this. And um, it sounds like maybe you guys are underweight growth or some of those those tech names that have really been outperforming so far this year. Like any investment professional, our job at times is to be mindful about not being bullied by a rally. And this year has certainly been one of those times. To us, fundamentally, does technology make sense from a valuation standpoint? We're looking at companies that are trading 45% above their 10-year average on PE in a 2% real rate environment. To our best estimation, much of this rally in mega technology, or if you even want to just call it a NASDAQ rally year to date, is a little bit of an unwinding of the sell-off of last year probably closely followed by a bit of a FOMO rally, meaning there's just so much cash still on the sidelines, kind of chasing participation. And so as much as we talk about, you know, the risk-free rate on the one-year treasury hovering around five, when you see some of these big names, plus 40, plus 50, plus 70% already year to date, that's that's such a huge variation where there is a bit of, you know, fear of missing out on, on that big performance. But to us, um, again, going back to the, t- the technical ac- aspect, you know, we're not bullish on the stickiness of this as we don't see any type of Fed pivot and, and liquidity event in the near term. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? 
I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're talking about the risk-free rate. So if we're thinking about six-month T-bills, for example, the yield there is very similar to the S&P earnings yield. They're almost evenly matched at around 5%. So I wanted to ask you, like, what even would be What's what are the reasons to be owning stocks and and does it sound like it's mostly people not really trusting the rally or not believing the rally but but needing or wanting to be in so that they're not missing out on what we've seen so far. You know, if there's one thing that uh, two decades in this industry and I'm certain the two decades I have in front of me in this industry yet will continue to teach me and humble me with it's there's never a good time to be risk on or risk off as an individual. Um, you know, your long positions remain long. And, and there is intrinsic value because at some point the market does begin to price in the future pivot or stall out you know, of the Fed, the return of, of loose uh, policy. And as a result of that, you know, it, it can't be perfectly timed. However, to counterbalance that, you know, for people who, you know, had a defensive positioning that was, underperforming relative to the risk-free rate, this is a great time to be transitioning into the laddering of, of treasuries, certainly. But then also looking at some of the, you know, the, the net asset value or the mark-to-market on, on fixed income funds in general and seeking no longer just a ballast but some appreciation opportunity as we don't expect the terminal rate wherever we may land with it to stay there in perpetuity forever. Simply Fed action moving us towards price stability, at which point then we expect that they too will come back to a more um, median level uh, for a terminal rate. I'm still thinking about your don't let the rally bully you comment. What a it, good comment. I know, it should be your life <laughs> mantra. But yes, the stock market has indeed rallied. And as some have been saying, it's gone too far too fast. Why do you think that it's not taking the right cues from the bond market? That is such a good question and one that I would say that I ask every day. There seems to be this, this possibility that the equity market is, at, at the surface level, not taking the right cue um, from the bond market. And what I mean by that most specifically is as we start to look out at yields and, and kind of the timing or the inversion of the curve, the steepness of it, it's almost as if the equity market is pricing in this moment in time in which financial data rolls over, there's enough weakness to support the Fed pivot or the Fed pause or whatever moment in time um, investors need and this not wanting to miss out on it. So when you think about kind of the valuation reset of last year, and if 2023 was really an expectation of a reset on earnings, then one could say, well, the valuations themselves got beat up enough last year that I am a willing buyer at these levels. And you couple that with an expectation that if you looked at the bond market 12, 18, 24 months from now, it was signaling you know, a reversion back towards policy that looked more like policy of past um, in terms of, of, of Fed action. 
that would that would indicate that the marks on some of these on, on some of these names um, were trading at a, at a relative discount. My fear is that the actual cue coming from the bond market is more screaming that the rollover of the financial data is going to be fast and it's going to be quite furious and that there will be a moment in time where the the the, the swiftness of uh, of the movement in interest rates suddenly comes to head and and I think that that still lies up, lies ahead as a possible threat to the markets what about what we're seeing in terms of the data right now? Because if we're thinking about the economy slowing down, what is the evidence that the economy is slowing down? So far to get to our target, we actually still need growth to slow. We need a labor market to come to balance. We need clear evidence of price stability across goods and services. And we don't have any of those. The only things that we have thus far are a slowdown in manufacturing, a slowing in confidence surveys and confidence levels across the board. In terms of seeing the actual demand destruction hit, it's not there yet. What we don't know and, and what some members of the Fed are still holding on to is the notion that the stim stimulus is finally running out and that another quarter or two from now, perhaps we see the participation rate um, you know, move away from these all-time lows. If if that happens, then, then perhaps that, that helps us out a bit. I want to move away from the U.S. and go to Asia, where I was born. Uh, that's a nice secret. That should have been your secret. Yeah, <laughs> In China. Um, what do you make of the China reopening? There's so many questions around it. A lot of people at first, even Goldman Sachs said it's going to be bumpy, but I think it's bumpier than most people thought. And I just read an article saying that fund managers are saying that treasuries will face more pressure from inflation, but this time with China as the key catalyst, not the U.S. So interesting. You know, even call it 24 months ago, when it came to China, in the short term, we weren't necessarily overly bullish just simply because of the impacts of COVID and, and some of their policies surrounding COVID and the uncertainty about directionally where they would go. But from a bullish standpoint, you know, this shift to a more capitalistic agenda and mindset as an economy, you know, is always very interesting to us. The geopolitical risks and that, again, heightened by, you know, 30 days ago, we're talking about the China reopening. We're looking at just kind of the broad emerging market just tear that we, we've been on in a positive way year to date, a lot of which had to do with the, the U.S. dollar and the strength. All of that to say when it comes to China and the opportunity there, there's no doubt in our minds that they will continue to have a seat at the head of the global economic table, that they're right there with us. In terms of as an investor today, it has to be a much longer positioning versus, you know, this ideation that we have of kind of managing a P&L day to day. Um, and from that perspective, that's really the way we think about incrementally adjusting um, our China exposure over time. What about any other international areas when it comes to positioning or investing? What do you guys make of the rally that we've seen in international stocks? You mentioned EM. 
international stocks have been outperforming U.S. stocks for the first time in forever. <laughs> so how are you guys thinking about that? Or, or what do you recommend when clients come to you with those questions? So first and foremost, I mean, there's there tends to be waves of relative outperformance, U.S. versus abroad. And one could make a really strong case for heading into this year. It seemed due time that the wave of outperformance came from non-U.S. securities. Just if a company was based outside of the U.S., the discount you were receiving relative for the, for the exact same company from a kind of a fundamental standpoint looked dislocated enough that there was a, there was a good reason. With that also, you know, playing into the U.S. dollar and the expectation that it would, from a relative strength perspective, begin to normalize in 2023, all of that created tailwind for non-U.S. investing heading into this year. Pairing that also, though, with portfolio construction in the U.S., looking at the China reopening and thinking more about the, cons- the global consumer, you know, China coming back online uh, has a lot of implications, and some of them, you know, kind of go without being talked about in terms of headline news. And, and the street tends to kind of not pay enough attention to the incremental growth component of that's going to happen. And so areas we loved and that continue to do well this year were, were luxury goods and then also attainable luxuries when you think about um, the non-U.S. population. So names like Estee Lauder, Starbucks, Nike. Um, as, as people around the world become more mobile again, duty-free shopping, all of those things come into play in terms of portfolio construction. Estee Lauder was my mom's favorite makeup before. <laughs> okay, going back to China... Can the impact of the China reopening offset the incremental slowdown we're seeing in the U.S.? Our bet is on yes, in terms of margin, in terms of, you know, some of the, the, the earnings numbers. Will it go unnoticed? Perhaps. Um, but we do think that the, the Chinese consumer has a lot of pent-up demand However, they are not coming. The thing we also have to be really careful about when we think about China reopening as a whole, they're not coming out of their COVID policy the same way Americans did with a lot of stimulus in their pockets. Um, That's a very, um, that's not a consumer trend um, or expectation that we have. Their life during those roughly three years of COVID policy uh, looked much different than ours. And so um, it may not be enough to offset where we think directionally um, we're headed as we start to see, as I mentioned previously, some of this kind of rolling through or some of the data to start really representing um, the restrictive policy that we've been living in now, uh, you know, for, for the better part of six months. Nicole, I feel like we've put you through the ringer yes. <laughs> this, this, this entire interview, this entire discussion. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I, it, it does sometimes feel, I, I feel so bad. Sometimes it feels like it's like the Inquisition. Like, what are your thoughts on China? How should we be positioning? <laughs> thoughts on everything from stocks to bonds. To, and everything. But that's Nicole Webb, Senior VP and Financial Advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We have one more ringer to put you through, actually. But it's the best ringer. It's the best ringer. It's We're going to play... The craziest things we saw in markets this week. And Isabel, since it's your first time on the show, I think you have to go first. That's okay. I'm very proud of mine. I'm not sure if it's You market, told me it was good, so it needs to be super good. It's business related. Okay, fine. So everyone knows Winnie the Pooh. Yes. The little bear. Okay, so now there's Winnie, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. So it's a horror film made for less than 100,000, no less. And it, the premise is... Winnie the Pooh and his friend Piglet starving because Christopher Robin leaves them for college and can no longer feed them. This is the worst thing it's I've ever heard in my movie. life. Are you insane? And so they kill and eat their friend Eeyore. Are and then you they crazy? Set off on a murderous spree. I'm not crazy. It actually got a readership <laughs> spike in the Bloomberg terminal, meaning like a lot of people read it all at once. This is your craziest thing. It is very crazy, don't you think? I I will so never look at the, the Winnie the what's Pooh. The, where's the money? Where's the market's angle? I will never look at Winnie the Pooh the same way. The market's angle is that people are interested in these types of things, I suppose. Oh my gosh. Do you know how <laughs> depressed you just made me? <laughs> it made for less than 100,000. So mm. that's pretty impressive. I'm really curious how they'll do that. I mean, I'm going to Google it. So oh, I'll be too. the next click. Me too, but I'm horrified. It's cute in a scary way it's not cute at all and we talked about being vegetarians earlier oh my gosh (laughs) okay you go (laughs) nicole what about you (laughs) it's something less terrifying Um, than that (laughs) you know something it this it's kind of terrifying actually the one that comes to mind first for me and we didn't even touch on it during my inquisition as you so kindly referenced (laughs) it which it was a little bit nicer than that but i will say it was a lot of it was a lot of content you know there there seems to be some structural issues with the labor market. And something that really resonates with me this week is we, in the states of Minnesota and Iowa, there is now a petition to change child labor laws um, to meet the, the shortage of workers in uh, industries like meatpacking and meat processing and construction. And they're looking at revising the the legal age for children to start working down to 14 years old. No. You should see our jobs right of, now. You should. Are we our jobs? Yep, that, like, I think that says a, a lot about uh, where the labor market what, is and where it's expected. This is to the most morose discussion so, I've ever had in my entire what was life. The age before what was it reduced from? Yeah, you can work on a very specific part-time schedule um, with certain hours between the age, starting at the age of 15, I believe it is in those states. But they're looking at, especially for the upcoming summer, looking at kind of extending what those hours can be. And then again, like I said, the, the minimum age for working down to 14, which I don't know if you have any exposure to what a meat processing plant looks like, but that's a tough environment to put a 14-year-old in. Some of the so hardest jobs. That yeah. one shocked me. But yeah. that, that just basically, that just gives us a view into the labor shortage in the U.S., right? It really does. 
Mm -hmm. And and the notion of, as we circle back to what we were talking about earlier, can the Fed really do enough with rates alone to combat what we're up against, especially when it comes to, to labor? I'm speechless. My eyes are still bulging out of the eye sockets and I'm still just so shocked. What's yeah. yours, Vildana? I oh hope my it's gosh. Okay, mine is more fun Good. in honor of Mike, who usually leads the segment, the craziest thing segment this way. I'm going to try to play my best Mike Regan role. We're going to play, and I always mess up the pronunciation, the price is precise, which listeners know it's not the, what is it? What's the actual name? Price is right. It's not the price is right. It's the price is precise. Okay. We have nothing to do with the price is right. Okay, good. <laughs> so I'm going to give you something and the two of you have to guess the actual cost of this thing. It's an auction. Okay. I usually suck in these. Go. Okay. This is the point of the game. Okay. I found this article on Forbes. Mike would be so proud of me. I hope he's listening and enjoying what he has kindled in me. An ultra rare... 1908 Harley is now the most expensive motorcycle to ever be sold at any auction. It's actually quite ugly. They have a picture of it on the on the website. And I want the two of you to guess what the actual price was. No, I don't know anything Hugo, about motorcycles. And you go first, Isabel. $1.7 million. You're going with $1.7 million. Or should I go for $17 million? $17 million? Okay, 1. <gasps> I don't know. <laughs> what is this, 2021? <laughs> <laughs> okay, 1.7. 1.7. You're going with $1.7 million. Okay, yes. Nicole, you're a, you're a contestant on The Price is Precise. If you go over, you know, you know the rules. If you go over, you lose. So really hope Isabel is wrong. I'm, I'm going to go with... I mean, it even sounds ludicrous, but half a million dollars, 500,000? Okay, what is it? Oh my gosh, I don't want to say. I want to let the tension continue to run. <laughs> okay, the actual auction was $935,000. That's a good midpoint between no, me Nicole and No, Nicole still wins. 1.7, you were way over. Okay, fine. That is true. But yeah, does that tell you anything, Nicole, about the state of things? And um, Like I mentioned, Mike tends to do a lot of auction stuff. And some of the things, the, the, the actual prices that some of these things are going for really are so shocking to me sometimes. And I think back to 2020 or 2021 when, we, when it was the norm to be seeing NFTs or whatever else going for really high prices. Mm -hmm. And still we're seeing, I mean, I have no idea what, what a 1908 Harley Davidson should be going for. But does that tell you anything about the state of the economy or pent-up consumer demand, or is it more sort of like a, an Money idiot, sloshing around, I money guess. Money sloshing around, or is it an idiosyncratic thing where you're just seeing, you know, collectibles, certain collectibles going for high prices still? I think it says a lot about the consumer and consumerism mentality of people. I, I mean, you know, another idea I had for today's, um, I had so many ideas for the craziest things, but Tell us there's one more. Just, there's endless data. There's endless data points to 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 say people just they want and want and want and don't want to miss out. And there certainly is a lot of money still out there in the world. Oh, another one that I had for today was if you look at um, you know historically, this is the steepest, 
fastest slowdown in housing of all time. If we look at housing stocks, um, so your big names like Lennar, the Lennars of the world, you know, since October of last year, just a few short months, not only are we in this, this steep downward spiral, but you're seeing those stocks, you know, up 50% in a matter of three, three and a half, four months. So when I talk about this, the FOMO nature of people, whether it's collectibles or the, the kind of these, this mismatch, um, these mismatches in the market, you know, going back to the, the technicals um, on some of these technology companies, it's hard to get into the psyches of people right now. And it feels as if there's this, you know, mysterious white knight in the world that people just believe swoops in and fixes things and everything keeps trucking on. And, and I guess I start to get curious about the, you know, that point of reckoning when there is no one to purchase your $930,000 collectible motorcycle, what is it worth? It's worthless. And I think we have to keep that in mind. That's true. It's also about consumer demand. Okay, hers is more relevant than my Winnie the Pooh, I, I guess. I think, Nicole, you win. The Winnie the Pooh thing is like seriously the saddest thing I've ever heard. The it's saddest, that- craziest thing for sure. I've, yeah, I, can't, I don't even want to think about it anymore. <laughs> I just, the, my favorite part about the whole thing was the excitement around it. Like, oh, I've got a good one. <laughs> have, yeah, even before we started recording, she was like, oh my God, I have the perfect one. And I was like, great, I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> I think every time we have a meal together, we should start the meal with the craziest thing yes. I've seen in the markets. I'll bring a funner one next time. Yeah, let's see. Okay, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. That's Nicole Webb, Senior VP and Financial Advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group. We're so lucky to have you on the show today. Thank you. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me, at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.